my mind of you And everywhere I turn is a reminder Ministries and Intimate Local Christian Church with a worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. Thanks for listening to this Bible lesson. Why did God create Barah Ministries? Well, it's a spiritual home for Christians who want a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the one and only God, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus is a person, He's not a thing, He's not a concept. And we worship him because he is the sovereign God of the universe. He's numero uno, and there's no one else like him. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, the Jews were reminded of this irrevocable fact. To you, the Jewish race, your deliverance was shown to you through experience, so that you might know that the Lord is your God, and that there is no other God besides him. Our Almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't deliver the Jews only. He delivers all mankind with his work at the cross. Why do we study the Word? The Lord wants you to learn the Word of God verse by verse so that you operate in your life from his perspective and not from the world's perspective. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 say this, Beloved. And when you see beloved in the Bible, that means divinely loved believers in Christ. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, false teachers, so as to fall from your steadfastness, which is your victory as a believer in Christ. That's why we're studying the letter to the Colossians, because we're learning about false teachers and their false teaching. And you are a learner. And you are always learning, and you are always selecting teachers for your learning. And you need to, be, to make sure that you're picking the right teachers, because teachers can lead you right over the cliff. 2 Peter 3.18, instead, grow in the sphere of grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When you become a believer in Christ, The Lord puts you into an imaginary sphere like a geodesic dome. And what the atmosphere is in that dome is unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace. And he wants you to live there and he wants you to grow there. He does not expect you to stagnate. He does not expect you to stay in the same position. There are a lot of people when they graduate from high school, they think they have enough knowledge to get them through the rest of their life. And they, they just stop learning at that point. I got news for you. You better not stop learning at that point because there's an ignorance tax when you stop learning. 
So we study the word to get to know the Lord. And as we get to know him, it makes it easier and easier to place our confidence in him. Well, God has an enemy, Satan, whom God made the ruler of this world. And one of the traps Satan sucks believers into are sins of the flesh like sexual immorality. We call to mind the prodigal son who was accused by his older brother of loose living. Much worse are Satan's traps that suck us into the sin of legalism where people put themselves above others just like the older brother did in the prodigal son parable. He was much worse than the younger brother. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says this, We believers in Christ know that we are possessions of God the Father, yet we also know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, Satan, and we uh, live in the power of Satan as well as believers in Christ when we adopt his false teaching from his false teachers and create a lifestyle with that. But we can choose not to be sucked into Satan's deceptions. And as we fill our souls with the word of God, the Lord's exact thinking, we are sober and on the alert for the schemes of the devil. Today's Bible lesson, how you treat people matters. How you treat people matters. And that's something that God wants you to know. One of Satan's favorite targets is the family. If he can take down a husband, a wife, and a family simultaneously, it's a three-for-one destruction. Satan's always looking to disrupt the family unit and to disrupt unity because he absolutely hates unity, and his success rate is pretty good. We willingly allow him to destroy us. In today's lesson, the Apostle Paul has sound advice for the Colossian believers of the first century concerning God's hierarchy of authority, especially in the family. And as we do every month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper today and gain insight into the Lord's forgiveness. So let's hear some music. Exodus chapter 8, verse 10 says this, May all be done according to your word, Lord, that everyone may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Here's Lenny LeBlanc to say the same thing in a beautiful song. Lord, there is none like you. There is none like you. No one else can touch my heart. Like you do, I could search for all eternity long and find there is none like you. There is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I could search for all eternity long and find there is none like you. Your mercy 
to say in the hood, show ain't, there is none like you, Lord. Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for providing the way to salvation through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for teaching us how to treat each other. Thank you for giving us hope in a dark and hopeless world through the study of the light that is your Word. Help us to learn and to be edified by your instruction in today's lesson. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, how you treat people matters. How you treat people matters. That's kind of a double entendre, right? So how you treat people matters. And today we're going to be addressing how you treat people matters. So Christ considers families to be a priority. How the members of families treat each other matters to God. In Satan's kingdom, the family is always under attack because Satan hates unity. The divorce rate has skyrocketed. Single-parent homes are the norm. Unfaithfulness in marriage is rampant. One-night stands are promoted by Hollywood. Children are spoiled, unhappy, undisciplined, rebellious, and out of control. Parents are at their wit's end, and many parent, parents just leave their children to their own devices because forcing them to comply is too tiring, too upsetting, and too much work. That's the thing that just uh, amazes me about today. You get your kid, and you stick a, an electronic device in their hands and let them get entertained. And, of course, very little of that is educational. It's just a game. And, you know, let kids be kids, but we got a whole generation of people who are growing up without any direction whatsoever, bombarded by choices. More choices you get, the more paralyzed you get. And it's just really sad to watch. But it, you know, it isn't something that we should feel hopeless about because Jesus Christ still controls history. Jesus Christ still is in control of the universe, and there are things that we can do about it, and it's up to individuals using their choice to do things about it. So in today's passage, the Apostle Paul gives Colossian believers food for thought about family. And the passage is Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 25. And then in in the original languages, there are no chapter breaks. I think chapter breaks came in around the 1800s, 1600, 1800 sometime. So we're going to go into Colossians 4, verse 1, because that's where this passage really ends. So let's listen to the passage, and then we'll study it verse by verse. Begin at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Sorry about that. Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. 
Colossians 3.20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Colossians 3.21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so they will not lose heart. Colossians 3.22, slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. 3.24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Colossians 3.25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Colossians 4.1, Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So that's the passage that we're going to study verse by verse. So what are the Christ-centered principles of family operation? Let's study the passage verse by verse, starting at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. And it's always fun to hear what Christ has to say about a, an issue and then to see how that flies in the face of the things that we've adopted in the world in Satan's kingdom that are completely antithetical to that. All right, so let's start with Colossians 3.18. Wives. Ah, the word missing in the translation that is in the Greek. Voluntarily submit yourselves to your own husband as is fitting in honoring the Lord. Wives, voluntarily submit yourselves to your own husbands, as is fitting in honoring the Lord. A friend thanked me for spiritual guidance. He said, Rory, you asked me to marry a woman who would submit. And I did. Now she submits bills, honeydew lists, and vacation requests. You are a spiritual genius. Thank you very much. Thank you. Elvis has left the building. Submission is part of being human. It is an orientation to authority which God created to preserve order and to avoid chaos. Husbands, submit to the Lord. Wives, submit to husbands. Children, submit to parents. Slaves, submit to masters. Employees, submit to employers. And in each of these relationships, there are always those who resist Submitting. Marriage is a team sport. It's complementary and cooperative. I can't even tell you how many people I have seen who are in marriages that are competitive. Why would you do that? Why would you want to compete with the person you're in a relationship with? Because you know what competition is. Competition is, I win at your expense. That is not the marriage sport. That's basketball. In basketball, when I was playing basketball, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to beat you on the scoreboard, and then I wanted to humiliate you so much that when you played me the next time, you remembered and you didn't want anything to do with it. Well, a lot of people run that as their game in marriage, where it's competitive. And it's, well, you're not doing this, but I'm doing this. What is that about? I don't get it. 
So like in basketball, within marriage, each player plays a position. You certainly don't want the center bringing the ball up court, and you don't want midget point guards in the post. You don't want wives usurping the role of the husband, mainly because they can't do it. And you don't want husbands playing the role intended for wives, mainly because they can't do it. Because those aren't the roles that we were created to live. Men are initiators, women are responders. God did that. You may not like it. You may not want it to be that way, but it is that way. And so all of a sudden, when we start talking about stuff like this, you know, everybody gets all up in shackles. Well, why? Because Satan has convinced you that it should be another way. I can't tell you how many powerful female CEOs that I have worked for in my career. And my career has been about 40 years long, so it's been a long time. I've worked for a lot of powerful women CEOs. If you think women aren't responders, I'm telling you they are. So I will, I will ask these powerful women CEOs, what is it that you want me to do? Why am I asking that? Because I'm in submission to them. And they'll say, give me a proposal and I'll respond to it. And I'm in shock. Because you know that men are initiators and women are responders, but you don't really think that works in business in a situation where you're working with a powerful female CEO. That's exactly how it works a lot of the time. And so... This is something that is built into us for the purpose of working well together. Because two people banging their heads, two initiators banging their heads up against each other is a competition. It's not a cooperation. But submission in marriage is a problem for many women. They've been led to believe that submission is weak. The truth, submission is voluntary. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a vice president in a marriage relationship. Respecting your husband and submitting to your husband does not make you inferior. If you think so, you have the problem. Submission is what women do to bosses, to traffic lights, to laws, and even to the TSA when they go through the airports. But the suggestion that a woman be in submission to the lifelong partner she chooses suddenly raises hair on the back of her head. Satan is behind this rebellion. It is his greatest malady. He was not happy in submission to the Lord, and he teaches everybody he can not to want to be in submission to authority. Authority prevents chaos. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ had no problem being in submission to God the Father when he was here on earth. The perfect description of submission is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. It says this, Keep on having this attitude in yourselves, which was also the attitude in the Christ, Jesus. Philippians 2, 6, Who, although he always existed, although he was the exact same in essence as God the Father, deity, did not regard equality with God the Father as a thing to be seized and held. He understood when he was on the earth that he was in submission to God the Father's will. God the Father sent his son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of all mankind, to reconcile us to him so that we could have a relationship with him. Philippians 4, 2, 7. Instead, 
Jesus emptied himself. The, the Greek word kinoo. He deprived himself of the rightful function of deity, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. Doulos is the Greek word there. And being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humiliated himself. For God to take on human form is humiliating. But he did it. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was willing to submit to God the Father's will that he go to a cross and pay for every sin that every human being would ever commit, past, present, and future. All of our sins were credited to his account and judged. And he had to do that in submission to God the Father. Submission in marriage is the voluntary willingness to put yourself under the authority of another. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did when he went to the cross. He voluntarily went to the cross. He was not forced to the cross. No human being took his life. He voluntarily gave up his life at the cross. Women love being led. However, husbands are imperfect. So ladies, can you submit to an imperfect person? If you can't, then you can't have a relationship with anybody because everybody's imperfect. And that's the thing that seems to be the hang-up a lot of times in situations like this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives unconditionally and do not be embittered against them. Unconditional love is one-way love. It requires nothing of the object of love. Unconditional love is service-based. Husbands are commanded to serve their wives. And this sacrifice, like all sacrifices, always earns a set of scars. The problem with men is they want to understand women. You can't understand women. You have to just enjoy them. You know, understanding women is a complete waste of time because uh, I don't even want to get into that. Amen? Amen? Can I get an amen, guys? But husbands who demand one-sided, unquestioning obedience from a wife is not fit to run a household. They are tyrants. Great husbands don't make unilateral decisions. A husband who doesn't understand the value of a wife's input in every decision doesn't understand life or the Lord. After all, doesn't the Lord request that we voluntarily believe in him rather than being forced to believe? One-way love is not reciprocal. That was one of the big mistakes that that I made early on in, in my married life. I thought that love was something that was supposed to be re- reciprocal. Women aren't commanded to love men. They're commanded to respect them. And so I was waiting for the, re- for the reciprocal. One way, unconditional love's one way. If nothing comes back, you still keep sending it. And I didn't understand that at all. One-way love, unconditional love, is sacrificial. It doesn't require a positive response. The lover loves because he wants to love. Sacrificial love is not harsh. Thus, the verses comment on bitterness. Tantrum throwers are harsh. And when some men don't get their one-sided way, they throw a fit. 
Many men are children in men's bodies. Well, the opposite of being embittered is being loving. Loving a wife means always including her interests in every decision. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. You know, we're going to study Ephesians a couple of letters from now, and this passage has an absolutely parallel passage in Ephesians. And Ephesians 6, 1 tells children, Honor your mother and your father that it may go well with you and that your days may be extended on the earth. This is a this is a command with a promise attached that if you treat your parents well, you'll live longer. So the translation of Colossians 3.20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. The translation is kids, shut up and do what you're told. <laughs> children are asked to voluntarily follow the successful pattern suggested by God between the Lord and his creatures. And what is that? Obedience. The father guides children, but children only benefit from the guidance when they obey. And many children establish a pattern of disobedience from a young age, and then as adults, they continue to ruin their own lives in disobedience to laws, and in disobedience to anything that works. They find what works, and they do the opposite. Fathers are encouraged not to provoke rebellion in their children. Since most children today grow up in single-parent households, mothers are not off the hook in the matter of raising children. Mothers who teach their children to disobey or to disrespect their fathers are guilty of ruining their children. A final thought for parents. Teach obedience. You are not your children's friend. You're their guide. One of the things that drives me absolutely crazy when I'm in airports is when a parent says something to a kid and then the kid doesn't do, doesn't respond or doesn't do what they're supposed to do. And earlier this year I was sitting, actually it was late last year, I was sitting in the Admirals Club and this little kid comes out and he's probably three or four years old and the mothers were in the room in the Admiral's Club. It's a, a lounge for American Airlines passengers. And the mothers were in this room because you take your kids in there because they can be crazy and not disturb everybody. So the moms are coming out. So the kid comes out first. The mom comes out second. And she's got a stroller. And she says, hey, come back here. And he didn't respond. And I said, hey, did you hear what she said? And he turns around and looks at me. Get back over there. And he goes back over there, and mom says, are you for hire? <laughs> I said, no, that was free. <laughs> I like doing that for free. Because, look, if, if you give the kid an instruction, and they disobey, and you allow it, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? You may think it's cute. And, you know, moms are soft. You know, not all mom. My mom wasn't. My mom didn't have a soft bone in her body. But most of the time, moms are soft. You know, oh, they're, they're so cute, aren't they? They're so sweet. Oh, no. You can do that. That's, that's a, a mom's specialty, the soft part. But if you're a single mom, you got to play both roles. Teach obedience. Big deal. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. 
and even when he's old, he won't depart from it. That's the thing that's amazing to me, how, how much childhood affects later life. Proverbs 13.1, a wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a son who is, rebell- who is a rebellious scoffer, that's somebody who just laughs at every instruction, does not listen to rebuke. What's rebuke? Correction. Getting somebody in line. Children should heed the warning in Proverbs 12.15, which says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. That's the one thing that is just amazing to me is how many people there are in this world who want to do it on their own. Nobody does anything on their own. And the last thing you would ever want to do is listen to yourself for everything. <laughs> to listen to yourself for everything. Because believe me, you are listening to a fool. There are people who are smarter than you. There are people who can give you advice and teach you. And you should orient to these true teachers who are really trying to help you to advance faster than you would if you were doing things alone. So parenting is a lot more than rules and reprimands and punishments. Once your children are adults, parents must butt out of their lives. And that's one of the things I see parents not doing a lot of times, is trying to give their adult kids advice. It's over at 21. Kids are designed to launch, and it's not your job to interfere in their lives. But you say that, people go, oh, I don't agree with that. Yeah, because you buy into Satan's interference program. That's why. And that's why we're talking about Colossians. You know, why does he keep mentioning false teachers and false teaching? Because we adopt it. We adopt it and we run it. Well, I'm, I'm the mom. So I'm always going to be the mom. No. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. New families are created, and the in-laws, this, that's something that was said before there were in-laws. Before there were in-laws, God was telling in-laws to butt out. Isn't that amazing? So no. Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not exasperate, which means to embitter your children, so that they will not lose heart. Fathers are further encouraged not to irritate their children to the point of discouragement, causing children to give up on wanting to learn and wanting to follow. Colossians 3.22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your earthly masters, not only when their eye is on you, as do those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, simultaneously respecting your heavenly master, the Lord. Slaves were under a legally binding contract in the ancient world, and most of the time, these were contracts that they entered into voluntarily. It's not like the slave trade when all the brothers was brought over on the boat to do the work. Amen? (laughs) Amen, damn it. Amen, white people. (laughs) So what would happen in the ancient world is a person would get into debt and then they would voluntarily enter slavery for a period of, say, six years so that by doing the service, they could pay off the debt. 
And so I've heard a lot of times, well, what does the Lord sanction slavery? No, he dealt with the reality of the situation. These were legally binding contracts that were entered into voluntarily. And during the legally binding period, the people who were slaves were possessions of their masters, just as Christians are possessions of Christ. Now, we'd be hard-pressed to say that being a bondservant of Christ, being a doulos in 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week service to the Lord is a negative thing. It is not. So it was with the household slaves. It was not oppressive or damaging to the slaves when it was handled well. In the matter of treatment, both slaves and masters are exhorted to be honorable toward each other. And that's the theme of everything we've been talking about. Wives, be honorable toward your husband. Husbands, be honorable toward your wives. Children, be honorable toward your parents. And slave, masters, be honorable toward your slaves. Slaves are encouraged not to be phony and two-faced, having one relationship on the surface while harboring resentment toward their master underneath, as Satan did with the Lord. And you see that so often. You see people who work for someone, get a check from them, but hate them, won't tell them the truth, won't bring news to them that they need to have. It's really sad. So slaves, who are you when no one is looking? What is your motivation? In Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, the Lord says this, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? Somebody who talks from behind a mask. A phony. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. That's eyewash, external service. Truly I say to you, the Lord says, they have their reward in full. Matthew 6, 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, go into your closet, close the door, and pray to your Father. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Effectiveness in the spiritual realm occurs from the inside out. It does not occur from the outside in. And that's what everybody seems to be interested in now. Posting on social media and having people from the outside tell them how great they are. Well, why wouldn't they think you're great? You're posting only those things which are positive. You're not telling them how you really are. You're not being vulnerable on social media, so you subject yourself to criticism. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Slaves, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward, the fair compensation of the spiritual inheritance. It is the Lord, the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, whom you serve. Obviously, Paul has Christian slaves in mind here. Slaves not only work for the Lord, but also for their human masters. Slaves are to do their work with all their hearts and all their minds and all their soul and all their strength. They are to work from the inner being. They are not to be coin-operated paycheck players who have to be told what to do every single minute. They're to put their hearts into their work, to operate with passion, with creativity, with innovation. Slaves are to avoid focusing on the outward appearance. Slaves may not be able to count on an inheritance while they're on earth, but they can, they can count on a spiritual inheritance in heaven 
as believers in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 25. For the slave who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. God is not one to play favorites. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says this, With God there is neither Jew nor Greek, no racial extension, uh, no racial distinction. Racism is stupid. There's no other way to say it. Well, there is another way to say it, but it probably involves words that I don't want to say from here. There is neither slave nor free man, which is no social distinction. The rich, the poor, the middle class, the upper class, the lower class. That's all Satan's doing. There is neither male nor female. There's no gender distinction. What about the gender war? You know, I am woman, hear me roar. You know, whatever the man song is, that is the equivalent of that. That's not the way God looks at us. He does not look at us in a, in a gender way. And it's going to be the most surprising thing in the world for people when they go to heaven that there's not going to be any gender <laughs> in heaven. It's going to be surprising that all the angels are male. Oh, my goodness, how do you know? Because of the Greek. For you believers in Christ are all one in unity because you're in union with Christ Jesus. So in God's family, every person is equal and valued. And I just wonder if you can wrap your head around that. In God's family, every person is equal and valued. And I'll tell you, you can't wrap your head around that because you don't think you're equal and you don't think you're valued. That self-deprecation where you're always beating yourself up and always mad at yourself because you make mistakes like that's not normal. That's how we learn. And we need to learn to value ourselves. We need to start looking at ourselves as equal. You know, I've been black my whole life. And people have been telling me my whole life that I'm inferior. I'm colored. I'm a Negro. I'm the N-word. I like saying the word, but I'm not going to do it. I'm a minority. I'm African-American. Not whole American, African-American. I'm a, an at-risk youth. I'm a person of color. I'm anything but a human being. I've been told that my whole life. And you know what my reaction to it is? I'm Teflon. It bounces off of me. I don't accept labels that people want to put on me because I value me. And I don't need you to value me because I value me. How about you? Do you need to be affirmed from the outside? Do you need to be validated? Or, or do you have a high opinion of yourself? Because you need to have a high opinion of yourself. Because if you don't have a high opinion of yourself, how's anybody else going to have a high opinion of you? That's what we're talking about here. In God's family, every person is equal and valued. And that's what we were talking about in the very beginning of Colossians chapter 3, and I think it was verse 1, where it said, keep your eyes fixed on the heavenlies and not on the earth. Because here on the earth, you're put into a class and you're judged based on what kind of car you drive and what kind of clothes you wear and what kind of friends you have. That's not the heavenly realm. 
That's Satan devising a scheme to make us all feel like crap. All of us will receive from the Lord, who is not partial, an objective and impartial hearing on the judgment day, where we get to make an account of what we did with the gift of life that we were given. That's not the place where your sins are going to be mentioned. God's not going to bring up your sins. The Lord paid for them at the cross. But he is going to ask, what would you do with this life? What difference did it make that you were on the planet? And when I ask people that in my consulting practice, what difference does it make that you're on the planet? I love asking that question because everybody who hears that question coughs up a furball. But that's something you should think about. What difference does it make that you're on the planet? What's your contribution here? When you start thinking about that, then you'll understand what this whole letter is about, about false teachers and false teaching, because you've bought something and made it a lifestyle. Is it the lifestyle you want? Is it the only thing you think you're capable of? Because I'd probably disagree. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves both justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Masters are commanded to be impartial and fair in their dealings with slaves. Their sacrifice will encounter scars. For those masters who want to be treated fairly by their master, the Lord, they do well to imitate the Lord in his fair dealings with his creatures. The Lord is completely fair, completely just, completely loving, completely forgiving, and he wants masters to do the exact same. Well, when we return from the break, we'll take the offering, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong at the end of the line. With all the other not quite, with all the never get it right. But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time. Cause I'm just a nobody trying to tell you. For the world. 
Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, How You Treat People Matters. How You Treat People Matters. Well, King David had asked an interesting question in Psalm 116, verse 12. He says, What shall I give to the Lord in repayment for all his goodness toward me? What can we as mere humans give to the almighty, all-powerful, all-sufficient God? Well, the Lord wants us to give the things he gifts to us, our time, our talent, and our treasure for the benefit of others. The offering is the treasure part. It's your chance to redirect the funds that God has given you to help others. Give with an abundance mentality, knowing that whatever you give the Lord, whatever you give, the Lord will multiply to others and will multiply back to you. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with one of his always inspiring offering messages. 
Good morning. My name is Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon at Barah Ministries because this small Christian church with worldwide impact is a place for unity. And I swear I think I gave Pastor's idea for his lesson this week because a lot of the things he's saying is some of the things I was going to talk about. So you think about it, at the offering is really a, a time of unity because, like Pastor said, we're unifying our treasure. And this is a chance for us to unify our treasure in order to glorify God. We're getting the message out that Jesus Christ is our Savior, and through grace, we have a free gift to, from Him to have eternal life through His righteousness. And that's something that we're getting out to the world each week, each day, every chance we get. And, you know, uh, at, at Barah Ministries, we don't take sides. We take God's side. And He says, whosoever, so that's what we say, whosoever. And let's see what the Bible also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I, Paul... Exhort you, fellow, fellow believers in Christ, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no rivalries among you. Instead, that you be complete in the same mind and in the same purpose. And so you think about it, as Christians, we all have the same father. We're all from the same family. So we have unity. And you think about it, we're all from the same body. We're body of Christ. We have the head, we have the hands, we have, well, I'll stop there. But we have lots of, lots of roles that we all need to fill. Some of them aren't as fun as others and as, as you know, get to stand up front and have all the, the fame, but all of it really matters. And then you think about we're all, have, we're all living under the same grace, the same grace from God. He gives whosoever the same grace. Nobody's special because we all have the same offer from God. And so when you're giving it the offering, you're really unifying your time, your talent, and your treasure. And we're thankful for that. So remember that right now we're unifying our treasure in order to glorify God. And giving, giving to this church is the best thing you can do because it's supported by the divine power of God. And another, op, another example of unifying and coming together and working toward a common cause is the Iowa Hawkeyes <laughs> girls basketball team. Play today at 1230. Going to win the national championship. Yes, they are. <laughs> That's why I love it. So point of that story is they're unifying their, their work, their time, their talent, and they've really made impact, and they've, they've gone very far. So it used to be I want to be like Mike. Now it's I want to be like Clark. Well, at Barah Ministries, it's like I want to be like Christ. So thank you for unifying your treasure and coming today and listening each week. Hit it, Zach. Verdict was guilty. Case closed. The end. No chance for me to ever leave this prison of my sin. Now I know it might sound crazy, but one day a key unlocked that cell. I heard a small voice say, Your debt's been paid by somebody else. And now I'm walking, walking. perfect I still stumble every single day 
still get knocked down, but the difference now is that's not where I stay. Cause I got a savior who knows everywhere I've been. And he's telling me that I never have to go back there again. So now I'm walking, walking, walking free. No more darkness, guilt, and lost its grip on me. When mercy Closet Bra Ministries listeners out there uh, will know you're out there when you send contributions. So don't forget that you can give through the newsletter or through the app or on the website. Well, next is the Lord's Supper celebration. The Lord wants us to forgive ourselves as he has forgiven us. The Lord wants us to forgive ourselves as he has forgiven us. Welcome to the Lord's Supper celebration. As we remember the Lord, let's relax and let's enjoy the memories of things the Lord has done for us, especially his work on the cross. In John chapter 6, verse 51, the Lord reminds his believers, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, am the living bread that came down out of heaven. This was Jesus announcing his deity. If anyone chooses to eat of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the resurrection life of the world is my flesh. He was comparing himself to the manna that would fall from heaven every day to feed the Jews when they were in the wilderness. And he said he was the living bread. Well, he's not only the bread that makes possible the resurrection life, which is eternal life. He is soul refreshment as well. Remember what he told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14? Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, and remember that the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritan, so she was in shock that he was even talking to her. And men 
didn't talk to women much in that time either. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, everyone who keeps on drinking of the water of this well, which is the world's water, the kind of water we drink every day, will thirst again. John 4.14, but whoever drinks of the spiritual water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water I give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's the Lord. He is our refreshment. He is our nourishment through the bread. And the Lord wants us to remember him, to keep him top of mind. So he asks us to keep on celebrating the Lord's Supper and to keep on calling to mind all that he did for us at the cross. This year we, we focused on the fact that he redeemed us and that he has reconciled us. And today we'll look at the fact that he has forgiven us. And these memories incite gratitude in our hearts. And gratitude is a weapon against God's enemy, Satan. Well, if you ask almost anyone what Jesus did, that is significant. Even the unschooled will say Jesus died for our sins. But do they know what that even means? It means death is the penalty for sin. You see, when we sin, whatever the result is going to be from that, it's not going to work out. And so whatever we produce from that is dead. Either you will die for your sins or someone has to die for your sins in your place. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that from the moment of your physical birth, you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. We're born physically alive, we're born spiritually dead, and we're in a hell of a predicament because we are from physical birth sentenced to the lake of fire. If you do nothing, In the matter of your relationship with Jesus Christ while you're on earth, you're going to the lake of fire by choice. Well, Jesus went to the cross to forgive your sins, to make it possible that you could be saved. So here's the story of how the Lord handled one woman's sins. Luke chapter 7, verses 41 to 50 says this. The Lord said to Simon the Pharisee, a legalistic unbeliever, A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50 denarii. Now, a denarius was a day's wage for a common laborer. Luke 7.42. When the debtors were unable to repay, the moneylender graciously forgave them both the debt. So which of them will love the moneylender more? Luke 7:43 Simon the Pharisee said I suppose the one whom he forgave more and Jesus said to him you have judged correctly Luke 7:44 Turning to the woman he said to Simon the Pharisee who was judging this woman Do you see this woman I entered your house you gave me no water to wash my feet which was the custom at the time because everybody walked around barefooted But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And and most likely, the woman that is in view here in the story was a prostitute. And that's why Simon the Pharisee had his nose up in the air. Now, on the one hand, the Pharisees frequented prostitutes. But on the other hand, they looked down on them, which is what legalism is all about. Luke chapter 7, verse 45. You gave me no kiss. 
That's a customary greeting at the door when you invite somebody into your house. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You want to put that one up? She has not ceased to kiss my feet. Simon's approach was no way to treat a guest. Luke 7.46, you didn't anoint my head with oil. That was another custom. But she anointed my feet with perfume, a very expensive alabaster perfume. Luke 7.47, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Simon didn't think he had any sins. He thought his sins were very small. So his love was not great. But this woman, who knew that she was a sinner, loved much. Luke 7, 48. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. Luke 7, 49. Those who were reclining at the table with Jesus began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? He's God. And they were sitting with God, and they didn't even know that they were sitting with God. You know why? Because they ignored all of the scripture that pointed to exactly what they would see when the Messiah came. And one of the things that they would see was that he would be forgiving sins. So who's, that, who's the man who forgives sins? He's the God-man, the Lord, Jesus, the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. 100% God and 100% man and one person forever. Luke 7.50, and Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace with your God. The woman's faith alone allowed the Lord to save her, not her gift of expensive perfume, not her tears, not her sincerity, simply her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She believed in him. He had forgiven her sins at the cross. She was saved. All of us come to earth spiritually bankrupt and unable to pay for our own sins in a way that satisfies God. Your guilty feelings don't pay for your sins. Your penance doesn't pay for your sins. Your phony proclamations don't pay for your sins. Oh, I just felt real bad. Forgiveness is a free gift from the graciousness of God. The Lord Jesus Christ paid for your sins at the cross. Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 say this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Romans 4, 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. I, the Lord, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 says, I, the Lord, will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In his body on the cross, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God the Father against sin. His blood shed at the cross covered our sins. His death, on the cross, ushered in a new custom covenant, a new testament, a covenant of grace, not law. Romans chapter 6, verse 14, sin shall no longer be a sovereign master over you believers in Christ. Why? Because you're not under the law, you are under grace. Who's under the law? Lawbreakers. 
okay, well, you were a lawbreaker before Jesus paid for your sins, and now that he has paid for them, you are no longer a lawbreaker, and so what are you under? Grace. What does grace mean? That he gives you things that you don't deserve, like salvation, free of charge. And that's something that human beings can't wrap their heads around. See, we always think we got to work to please God. And that if we do these silly little rituals and follow these silly little rules, that all of a sudden he'll like us better. He doesn't like it, not even a little bit. What the Lord is wondering, though, is this. Why is it that when I've forgiven every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, why is it that when I refuse to remember your sins, why do you spend so much of your time fretting about your sins and doing things you think will make me feel better about your sinning? Why do you still think about something you did 30 years ago or 15 years ago that was a mistake? Why are you still obsessing about it? As if looking into the past, you can do something about it. You can't do anything about it. You made a mistake. Did you learn from it is really the question. That's what the Lord is wondering today. Remember, what the Lord did at the cross is he forgave you. He did the only thing that is satisfactory in the eyes of God the Father to pay for your sins. He shed blood on the cross to pay for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say this, My little children, that's John referring to believers in Christ, I, John, am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So first of all, John is saying, believers in Christ, I hope you don't sin. And if anyone sins, that's a first-class condition, if in the Greek, it means if and it's true. And if anyone sins, and of course we do, we have an advocate with God the Father. Who? Jesus, the Christ, the only righteous one. Oh, well, that's interesting. What does he do? The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins. Big word, propitiation, five-syllable word, big word. What does it mean? It means that the only perfectly satisfactory payment for sins in the eyes of God the Father is what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. His shed blood. You can confess to a priest all you want to. You can do penance all you want to. You can say... 10 Hail Marys and 30 Our Fathers does nothing except waste your time. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only as believers in Christ, but also for the sins of the whole world. Both unbelievers and believers have their sins paid. Problem with unbelievers is they say, yeah, I don't accept what Christ did for me at the cross. I want to pay for my own. I want to pay for my own sins. Okay, cool. So here's the question that the Lord would pose to you today. Can you get off your own back about your sins? Can you stop obsessing about the fact that you've made mistakes in life? Can you stop trying to avoid making mistakes, which means you're not learning? Can you accept what the Lord did on your behalf to pay for every mistake you've ever made, past, present, and future? Can you relax? knowing that you make mistakes and someone more powerful than you, the Lord covered them. That's the thing the Lord wants you to remember today.
in today's Lord's Supper. Well, let's enjoy the elements. Bread and wine. The Lord gives us these things to remember him. We'll enjoy the elements together in a few moments as we listen to the Lord's Supper song. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28, tell us this. While the apostles were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take this, eat it. This is my body, which is being broken for you. And when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave them the cup and he said, Drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, the blood of a new testament. My blood poured out for whosoever for the forgiveness of sins. We celebrate to remember Jesus died as our sin substitute. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead to prove his deity. Jesus Christ will come again to gather us unto himself in a twinkling of an eye. Jesus forgives us once and for all time through his work on the cross. He said on the cross, it is finished. It's the Greek word tetelestai. It means paid in full. At the cross, your sins were paid in full. There's no more payment to make. We celebrate and we're grateful. So are you willing to forgive yourself? Enjoy the elements as we listen to Larnell Harris remind us that we have friends in the heavens. In his song, Friends in High Places.
I got friends in high places, too. Well, the closing moments of today's lesson are dedicated to anyone anywhere who is either undecided or confused about having a relationship with the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want you to know that God wants you. The Lord Jesus Christ gave you a powerful weapon and a perfect gift from the moment of your physical birth, choice. You get to choose the life you want to live. And as a matter of fact, the life you're living right now is the sum of all the decisions you have made so far in your life. The Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign God of the universe and the Savior of all mankind, says that there are only two choices for your eternal future. Either heaven, the small gate and the narrow way, or the lake of fire, which is the wide gate and the broad way described in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. Jesus Christ is the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through the wide gate. Matthew seven fourteen. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to the resurrection life, eternal life. And there are few who find the small gate. Which road will you choose for your eternal life? Those who are on the broad way that leads to destruction may think there is salvation in numbers. And that is not true. They think that God is going to be sentimental. That he's going to say the way to go to heaven is to believe in Christ. But, oh, if you didn't do it and you're basically a good person, you're going to be fine. Unfortunately, that's not the way God operates. Believing what everyone else believes does not save you. Placing your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation is what saves you. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is 100% God. That's why we call him the Lord, God the Son. He is 100% man, true humanity like you and me. That's why we call him Jesus. And we call him the Christ because he is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus says he is the small gate, which makes him your guide to get to heaven. John chapter 14, verse 6 says this. Jesus said to the doubting apostle Thomas, I am the way to salvation. I am the truth through the gospel message and the word of God. And I am the resurrection life, eternal life. And no one comes to God the Father in heaven but through believing in me. God the Father's plan for your life is simple. Believe in his Son, and it is your ticket to eternal life. Acts chapter 16, verse 31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. Those on the broad way that leads to destruction place their confidence in liars. The Lord Jesus Christ warns about these liars in Matthew chapter 7, Verse 15, he says, Beware of the false prophets, those are false teachers, who come to you in sheep's clothing, appearing harmless, who inwardly are ravenous wolves out to destroy your eternal future. As ravenous wolves, false teachers want to rip to shreds your chance for a great eternity by deceiving you with a false gospel message. I was just reading the other day about the six things that you have to do as a Roman Catholic to be saved. No, there's one, believe in Christ, that's it. But it's keep the sacraments, do penance, uh, go to Mass. You know, I was a Catholic for 21 years. You know, please, somebody kill me, put, my, put a gun in my mouth. But that's a false gospel message. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, illuminates the issue. There is a way that seems right to a man. What's the way that seems right to a man? Saving yourself by thinking good deeds will earn you your salvation. Thinking that you're basically a good person because you're not like Hitler who killed a bunch of people. But the Bible says something completely different, that you're born physically alive and spiritually dead. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that death that's being referred to here is the second death in the lake of fire. The Lord Jesus Christ offers the true gospel message and an invitation to be saved. In John chapter 3, verse 36, he said, He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life, eternal life, right at that moment. It's not a future event, and it's an immediate occurrence. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the, res- <clears throat> the resurrection life. That's to you. Amen? <laughs> No, I think it was the graham cracker. (laughs) Right where you sit right now, you can tell God the Father that you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. And that is the moment of eternal life for you. And after that moment of eternal life, there's nothing you could ever do to lose it. 
At that moment, you're placed in the union with Christ, and it's a union you can't get out of. John 10, 28 says, I give eternal life to believers in Christ, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who is this God that saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he says, I, Paul, deliver to you as of primary importance the gospel message I also received from God, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins on the cross, according to the Old Testament scriptures, and then he was buried, and then he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the Old Testament scriptures. One of the greatest things that ever happened in divine history is the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Everybody went there on the third day and Jesus wasn't there. Amen? He was gone. Where was he gone? To the right hand of God the Father. God's enemy, Satan, is the sponsor of false teachers, false teaching, and a false gospel message. And you have to be able to discern the difference between God's truth and Satan's lies. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 says this. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, the word of God from a true teacher, that's a third class condition, if. Maybe you will, maybe you won't, you have a choice. Then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. John eight thirty-two, and you will know the truth, the true gospel message and the truth will make you free. Another warning for those who choose the broad way is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven by obeying the gospel message will enter heaven. Matthew seven twenty-two. Many will say to me on that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not cast out demons? And in your name did we not perform many miracles? Matthew 7, 23. And then I, the Lord Jesus Christ, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me into the lake of fire, you who practice a lifestyle of lawlessness. Well, what does that mean exactly? What it means is, that God tells you how simple it is to be saved. Believe. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But there are a lot of religions saying, yeah, no, that's not it. You got to believe in Christ. Yeah, okay. But you got to, you got it, 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 you got to climb this ladder. Okay, if I do all that stuff, will I be saved? Eh, Maybe. That's not the way God puts it down to us. So don't wait until it's too late to consider what road you're on. Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Right this minute. So repent. What does that mean? Repent. Change your mind about having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You either have a relationship or you don't. If you don't, do and believe in his gospel message, the true gospel message. The will of God the Father is that you believe in his Son so that you can have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who choose the narrow way have decided that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the only ticket to eternal life. They are right.
get yourself on the narrow way that leads to eternal life in heaven right this minute. We close with music. The group Mercy Me says in song, I can only imagine. They're thinking about what is going to go on in heaven. And I say in response, oh, no, you can't. You can't even imagine in your wildest dreams what heaven is going to be like. Heaven is beyond our wildest imagination. So let's enjoy the music. I can only imagine by mercy me.
can only imagine when all I would do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine. No, you can't. No, you can't. It's exceeding and abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. Amen? Let us pray. Carrie, are you thinking about that? <laughs> <laughs> Almighty God and Father, thank you for being our friend in the heavenlies. Thank you for your spiritual wisdom that gives us spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. And thank you for reminding us how to edify our families by listening to your true teaching while rejecting false teaching. Thanks for teaching us about treatment because the most important treatment is how we treat ourselves. Help us to learn to treat ourselves like you treat us. Help us to see ourselves like you see us, as in union with Christ and totally righteous and as saints and as redeemed and reconciled and atoned for and expiated believers in Christ who will have an amazing eternal future. As we go back into the world, encourage us to keep on arming ourselves with truth. Because only when we arm ourselves with truth can we counteract the lies that we encounter in Satan's kingdom. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming. If you have any questions about biblical things, ask the pastor. Pastor at BarahMinistries.com. Keep on studying the Word of God. Thanks for coming. Thanks for watching. And thanks for listening.